Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Recently, I've really been digging when I can get guests that aren't docs from the ER to come and talk to me about something that I've realized I don't know enough about. Today, I've got a pair of folks in to talk with me about pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. It's something that I think we really need to know about, and the emergency room and healthcare in general has always been on the front lines of this. I'm going to let both of them introduce themselves and tell you what their jobs are, and then we're going to get into talking about what PrEP is, how you go about prescribing it, what the counseling looks like, and then some patient-specific navigation issues that I think they have a really good handle on. Good morning. My name is Martin Walker. I'm the director of HIV programs for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. Hello and hi there. This is Moises Munoz, and I am the prevention service manager for Children's Hospital Colorado um, related to the HIV work. So I grabbed these amazing people today to to have a talk about HIV and some of the work that, that's being done. But first, I wonder if we can just get an idea of, of what do our HIV patients, our new patients look like right now? Where are we seeing uh, rises or changes or, or new diagnoses? And, and how might that relate to me, specifically coming at it from a, a pediatrics provider? One thing that we're seeing, and you know, across the nation, we're seeing this as well, but just the increase of youth and young adults coming into the clinics and being diagnosed. And then we see that, in addition to that, youth of color, um, which we've also seen in the state of Colorado among uh, Latinx and African-American youth um, here in the state. And so our work has really been situated amongst those populations. So it's not too much of a surprise for us, unfortunately, but still um, some of the groups that we're very focused on and work with pretty fervently. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's been, there's definitely been increases in the numbers of young people being diagnosed, the numbers of young people actually being in, in, even engaging in the systems, right? Um, like we're seeing a lot more uh, young queer folks that are really looking for community and looking for home through a lot of the work that we do with Planned Parenthood. So in my in my work, I get to oversee programs across three states. I get to see programs in Las Vegas, Nevada, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and here in Denver and across Colorado. And so across all three of those states, through all of our programming, we're seeing a lot a large upswing in the number of youth that are coming in and just wanting to talk and wanting to be a part of a community around sexual health. I wouldn't say specifically HIV. It's not like they're walking up to us and saying, I want to talk to you about HIV. But they are definitely wanting to come in and just be a part of of a community. They're wanting to find other folks that are like them. They're wanting to um, they're wanting to just kind of learn and take better care of their sexual health overall. As far as like who the new patients look like for us, they're primarily um, I would say mid-20s to mid-30s gay men and primarily men of gay men of color. Um, we're seeing uh, lots and lots of that, uh, and specifically within the Latinx communities here in Colorado and, and in Las Vegas and Albuquerque, of course. That's always the biggest kind of driver of the epidemic. And then, I mean, nationwide, it's it's not really ever changed much. There's, it's always been that about three-quarters of all new diagnoses are among gay men. It's just kind of stayed that way forever. This is from the State of Adolescent Sexual Health in Colorado that was released by the Trailhead Institute in partnership with uh, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Um, so from 2016 through 2000 to 2017, Colorado HIV rates of diagnoses among young people ages 15 to 19 increased 23.3%. That's quite a large increase, just thinking about those numbers in general. And that statistic that Moises is referring to mirrors what is going on nationally, even though he references just the Colorado state statistics. I'll drop a couple of links in the show notes with references.
So let's assume that, that I know nothing about prep, which is which is relatively true. Uh, and it, what is it? And what does that regimen look like? And, and who is eligible for it? And how is it provided? Basically, give me the, the same spiel that you might give a, a new patient that's walking in the door and, and asking what this prep thing is. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And what that means is that you're going to take a pill every day that's going to be in your body to prevent you from getting HIV. Should you become exposed to HIV, this drug is going to already be in your system and be doing what it does to keep you from getting HIV. We like to describe it a lot of times to people like, think of it like birth control for HIV. Because with birth control, you take a pill every day to make sure you don't get pregnant. And with PrEP, you take a pill every day to make sure you don't get HIV. Um, so it's it's a real, it, it's been tolerated really, really well. There are some side effects that come along just with any other medication. You know, you get a little gastrointestinal distress. You might get a little bit of that kind of stuff that normally happens, um, but that typically goes away. There are also some side effects around um, kidney uh, dis dysfunction and around bone density loss that can be things that have to be kind of monitored for. So we always are monitoring people's uh, creatinine levels so we can check their kidney function. Um, uh, and then we just monitor bone loss, bone mineral loss, just to make sure that that's not really becoming an issue. But in all cases where people have experienced those major side effects when they've stopped taking the medication, the numbers have rebounded back to in healthy norms. PrEP really is just another tool, right? So we don't like to talk about PrEP to people and tell them that this is like the magic bullet. This is going to be the thing that's going to be yours forever to make sure you never get HIV. Because it's a medication that you have to take every day. And we, we realize that that's not something that everybody can always right. be really good at doing. Yeah, that birth control uh, analogy works really well there. Yeah, it does. Right. It does. If you don't take it, it doesn't work, yeah. right? And, and also, we know that it works really, really well when you also try to continue using condoms as much as you're able to. It's a tool in your toolbox. PrEP is another thing that you can use in your arsenal of armor to protect you from getting HIV. So far, there's only been one approved medication for PrEP, and that's Truvada, um, which is created, which is made by Gilead. There are some studies around that are doing, looking at some of that. There's a new formulation of Truvada that they're looking at that's supposed to be most, less to toxic on kidneys. Um, they're looking at a long-acting injectable version of it. Um, they're, they're looking at a lot of those different kinds of things to try, and, and those all seem to be looking pretty well. They've actually even done some really good studies on PrEP on demand, but that's kind of another topic all by itself. Um, and th that's, that's a once-daily regimen. The prep the, on demand? The, no, no, the, the Truvada. Yes, yeah. it's yeah. one pill yeah. once a day. Great. <laughs> and, and Moises can talk much better about how the dosing and what it looks like for, for youth. Yeah, I mean, so, and that was one of the biggest questions because initially, um, as of last summer, prior to last summer, um, PrEP was only uh, um, allowed to be prescribed by the FDA for folks over the age of 18. And so we were involved in some safety and feasibility su um, studies for young men who have sex with men, um, young queer gay bi men. And um, we proved through that study that it is safe for folks. Um, and now... Um, um, as long as you weigh over 35 kilograms, <laughs> you are, you can be which, prescribed PrEP. Which is going to be the majority of the, you know, the yeah. patients. I, yeah. That's not going to exclude very many. So so we're really glad that that change was able to happen. But I think there are some specific things that we have to think about when we think about young adults and how we provide care to them to really to make sure that they can adhere to the medication in a way that it is friendly and easy and also ac accessible. So you said side effect wise, it's, it's GI. And then we're mm -hmm. looking at tracking creatinine and bone density. Is there anything liver wise that? Is you track transaminases as well? True entirely through the kidney. Fantastic. And then it's all oral, at least the current, current regimen that exists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then there isn't dose adjustment as long as you're above 35 kilograms. It is one Correct. pill once a day. That makes it really simple for my my uh, yeah, my yeah. simplistic mind. When you have somebody who is who you're talking to about prep or about starting, what sort of counseling goes into that before they start? So I think one of the things that we noticed through, through this study uh, by Sybil Hosek 
And the article that Moises is talking about there was published in the Journal of Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome in January of 2017. The lead author is Sybil Hosek, H-O-S-E-K, and it's titled An HIV Pre-Exposure Prophylaxis Demonstration Project and Safety Study for Young MSM was that adherence rates to taking PrEP specifically amongst youth and then even more so amongst youth of color tend to be a little less. And so what are the recommendations that is actually, because um, as of now, you, you'll meet with your doctor every three months to run those labs and have conversations, talk about adherence and all of those things. And one of the recommendations is that we should actually meet with young people more often. So our clinic, our PrEP clinic, we'll meet with, we'll meet with them once a month um, for those first three months. And if if we identify that that young person needs a little more, we can go ahead and do that and provide, you know, additional visits. Also having PrEP navigators also double as sort of case management to a degree, because what we also find is that often this is young people's one connection to the healthcare world, and they have a lot more needs and need a lot more resources than just PrEP. So being able to have staff there to assist with some of those others' needs has, has been crucial, whether they're psychosocial or um, just sort of resourcing and access to different things. What does the training look like for those those folks? Are they nursing? Are they social work? Are they, you know, volunteer um, and, and maybe all of the above? Yeah, I think it's probably the latter. So all of the above. And in Colorado, the state health department provides a, a prep training to sort of give folks all they need to know about everything prep related. It's, it's a really interesting kind of new field of study that they're doing. It seems like every state is coming up with their own version of what is a, a prep credentialing process or a prep certification process look like. There have been, since I mean, PrEP is relatively new, right? It was only FDA actually approved in 2012. So we've only been kind of working with this now for about seven years and trying to rapidly expand access and rapidly ramp up uptake of, of PrEP across many different populations and across the country, around the world. But we've only been doing this for about seven years or so. So it's been, you know, we're... Right. This is new. Every year they're having big, big conferences. They call this the Biomedical HIV Prevention Conference that they they put on every year where they're coming together to talk specifically about these biomedical interventions and how they might work better. You know, it's interesting listening to you, Moises, talk about how the extra work that you kind of put in working with youth and keeping them adherent to the medication, keeping them on PrEP. We find the exact same thing when we're working with adults. It's really about, you know, we at, for some folks, we will meet with them on a weekly basis. You know, did you have any trouble over this last week taking your pills? How many, how many doses did you miss? What can I do to help you remember next week? You know, is there any new systems we can develop? Or, you know, we have to be in constant contact because we find that if we don't, if we don't stay in constant contact and continue to check in with folks, they tend to, life happens. Life gets in the way, especially when you're already kind of, you're already marginalized. You're already in a community that's that's just not really been treated well historically by medical providers, those kinds of communities. Any excuse to stop and have to not deal with this anymore is, is readily taken. So we have to do everything we can to reduce all of those kinds of barriers. We will take people to their appointments. We will go with them to their appointments and sit there with them to help them interact with the provider. Do you know if there are resistance issues if you start somebody on it and they are they're only taking, you know, maybe three or you know half the amount of doses that they is the is the issue with that resistance or is the issue with that just inefficacy? Inefficacy. Okay. So, so resistance is a really interesting thing that only can really happen if you actually acquire HIV. So resistance will happen when the HIV um, decides that the pill that you're taking to fight it doesn't work anymore. It mutates to a point where that doesn't happen. And so resistance can't happen if you're just minimally taking it so long as you never get 
acquire HIV. But what can happen is, though, is that if you do acquire HIV and you continue just kind of taking Truvada a little bit, it's not going to work very well and you're going to end up getting sick. Another thing that we talk about, you know, you asked earlier about the counseling piece around starting somebody on PrEP and talking to them about it. Some of the most important things to talk about are, are making sure that you are a negative right now. We don't want to start you on PrEP if you are, for some reason, already positive, if we're missing it on our rapid test because you're in the window period, any of those kinds of things. So we want to make very sure that you're HIV negative. And then we also want to make sure that things like you don't have hepatitis B because Truvada also can cause flare-ups of hepatitis B. It can treat hepatitis B. It's used to treat hep B. And so then if you stop taking your Truvada for some reason, it's going to cause that to flare up and get really sick. I'm wondering, as we're discussing compliance rates with, you know, if you're intended for seven doses in a week, do any of the studies on PrEP efficacy talk about where in the doses per week the effectiveness starts to drop off and if that is altered based on what your exposures are? The studies have shown, and the reason why PrEP on demand, which is something I'm a little bit earlier seems to be working is that if you take the pill at least four times a week, you're going to get pretty much the same level of efficacy as if you had taken the pill every day that week. And most folks who are using PrEP on demand end up taking about four pills per week anyway. We tell people it's going to take seven days to start becoming effective in penile and oral tissue. It's going to take 20, or penile and anal, and it's going to take 21 days to start becoming effective in vaginal tissue. Um, so it's, it's different based on what kind of sex you might be having and what your risk actually looks like. What is PrEP on demand? So PrEP on demand is this idea where you take one pill the day before you're going to be having sexual activities, and then you take one pill every day until the day after you've stopped having sexual activity. If you can predict when when you're anticipating your yeah. exposures yes. are going to be, yeah. or could be. And I may be wrong a little bit. It may be two pills on the first day, and then one pill okay. day, every day thereafter. But, but the idea is you, you start it yeah. the day before, but, it, then, but it's not a, I have had a potential exposure and, and it's like the plan B equivalent for that HIV. That would be post-exposure yeah, like prophylaxis yeah. or NPEP. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, NPEP is non-occupational. So outside of needle stick, outside of in the healthcare world, you get exposed through sexual contact for whatever reason. Then we can start you. We start you within 72 hours. We bring it into all of our high school presentations. It's just sort of we package PrEP and NPEP together just to explain, A, the differences, but also really inform folks that NPEP is an yeah. option. What's out there? NPEP is one of the most important things, I think, for folks like you and folks that work in emergency departments because you are our referral point when someone right. calls us on Saturday night and says I just had sex with this guy and then I saw his HIV medications in the cabinet and they are all unopened so I think he is detectable and and we had unprotected sex I need to get on pep right we don't have doctors that are available to us at that time to just get it through our clinic and what we find is that many many times people go in there and are a discriminated against or be told that they have no idea what they're talking about when they ask for post exposure prophylaxis oh. And so I think that it's a really important thing for your listeners and for folks who work in emergency departments to learn about is that post-exposure prophylaxis isn't just for needle sticks. It can be used for people who have risky sexual experiences, and it should be used for people who have risky sexual experiences within 72 hours of that exposure, depending on the, what the actual sex was, how likely it is that that person was positive. There are things that go into it, but it should be something that's at least known about. You know, I have yet to come up with a good sound drop that encompasses when somebody drops an absolute knowledge bomb that doesn't just make your speakers blow out, but I'm working on it. So Martin drops something that I think is an absolute indictment of us as healthcare providers. If we have patients coming in and they've been directed to seek a specific therapy, especially something like post-exposure prophylaxis, which we're well aware of in the healthcare setting in the form of needle stick injuries, that is something we got to know about or at least investigate while the patient is there with you. So 
I would recommend you go back and listen to that again. We're going to move right into a statement from Moises about some Colorado-specific laws surrounding the issue of sexual health and minors. It's outside the scope of this podcast, but you definitely need to look up your local and state statutes because it's going to differ everywhere, and we are not providing specific legal advice. How do we navigate the communication about this for patients who are still legally a minor and or they are on parents' insurance? You know, what sort of parental approval has to be given for this? And and when can this sort of health care be given without the parent's approval or presence? And, and can it? Yeah. So um, Colorado recently modernized our STI laws. What that guarantees is that um, young people can not only can also get tested, treated for STIs to include HIV, but also get access to preventative biomedical interventions like PrEP. But it does get complicated when you start talking about insurance and things of that sort, because being on your parents' insurance can be a great thing. But when you are not in a place where you can share your interest in being on PrEP or why you want to be on PrEP with your parents, that becomes a little more complicated. Because they're going to get the bill. Exactly. And that's where our navigators and thankful, I mean, in Colorado, at least we have a couple of pay assistance programs that have been really helpful. Um, And also Gilead has just recently changed their rules around youth and needing an adult signature to be able to sign off for the copay assistance programs. Gilead's Um, the manufacturer of Truvada? Correct. So, so yeah. So, thankfully, we we do have a lot of um, supportive services around making it affordable and looking, being creative in how we help folks to afford this medication in dealing with those dynamics with parents, insurance, and all those things. So, the next question I asked was: If you are out there looking to train yourself or to train others on how better to take care of these patients, what resources are out there? One of the really great parts of the federal response to HIV for a long time now has been the AIDS Education Training Center Network, the AETC Network. Um, so every region has an AETC that is responsible for their region. Um, and then usually those regional offices have like state-specific agencies that kind of conduct stuff for them in that state. Are there things that you wish that healthcare providers knew to better take care of this population or things that that patients are showing up to you and telling you that make you cringe because of a, an experience they had with with the healthcare system? And is there any way to... I mean, there's a lot of those. Those are, yeah. they tend to be Debbie Downers. And so I don't like to dwell in them. I think one of the most important things that I hear overwhelmingly from a lot of clients is just um, this whole idea that uh, specifically from a lot of people living with HIV is that they they were there were so many missed opportunities wherein they engaged in the at the ED or the ER for some kind of something else that was going on and because they weren't talked to about anything sexual or anything about their that part of their life an HIV test was ever done um, and so just this whole idea of really really using the guidelines from CDC about how often and who we should be testing for HIV and making it a more um, n- normalized piece of our healthcare rather than a uh, only we're going to test you because you said you're a gay man or we're only going to test you because you said you inject drugs, like making it to where everybody is getting these tests done because really part of, part of the battle of getting to the end of this fight is making sure that everybody who has HIV knows their status and they will never if they don't get tested. Right. And train folks up. I think that's the other thing too. I think there's there's the, the role that stigma plays just in 
when it comes to PrEP, when it comes to HIV, um, it's still there. It's still present. Folks are afraid to prescribe. Folks are afraid to test um, as far as like providers. Because it's like, well, this is like a really meaty, heavy topic. We don't have the training. We don't have the skills around doing some of this stuff. And it's like, well, actually, you probably do. And, you know, happy to give sort of like refreshers or, you know, touch on specific things that are like culturally specific to be more culturally responsive, things of that sort. Um but really, I think a lot of that can be solved through some just training, some quick conversations and discussions. Yeah, I spent the first 10 years of my career raging all the time, being that angry advocate that was always in the meetings yelling and why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that? And I realized after my first stroke that, you know, you just got to de-stress your life so that you can just kind of roll with the punches. Because one thing we know about this fight is that it is a marathon. It is a, we have to do it. But you know what is different now is that it, fight actually can end. We actually have all the things we need now to end HIV. We can get people on PrEP so that they don't acquire HIV. We can keep people treated who have the disease and they become uninfectious. If they become undetectable within their viral load, they cannot transmit the virus sexually to other people. And we need to be spreading that message and we need to be getting everybody on PrEP. Yeah, it's huge. We could end HIV in our generation. If only we had the political will and financial resources to make it happen, to get people access to medications. I left that interview feeling so inspired and like I was ready to run through walls for my patients. I hope you get at least a little bit of that excitement hearing two people that are very passionate about something talk about their lifelong work. Per usual, I have links to everything we talked about in the show notes as well as appropriate references. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or via the Little Big Med website, www littlebigmed.com. And if you can do me a favor, don't forget to go ahead over to iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and leave a review. It really does help other people find the show. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 